0: Um, I'm going to be in the unpopular role of being the true obstacle before Mick can get on the, on the plane. Um, I've asked uh, the two presenters, and they've given up their right to respond to comments. Uh, because we need to finish by four and we need to have some kind of narrative closure to this, I'm going to imperially usurp just the last five minutes uh, to try to give a rough summary of what's happened the last 36 hours and what we've, what we've come up with. Hopefully it will generate the kinds of discussions uh, later on that, that we were hoping to do. Um, I mean, this is an absurd task, but I'll take it on. Um, one thing seems to be clear of all four panels, uh, that the assumed simplicity of causal orders proposed both by the ideologues of the left and the right um, cannot stand the lack of intellectual analysis. Uh, discussion about good globalization and bad globalization it's not just silly, it's, it's stupid and it's dangerous. Um, whether it's the dissolution of states, whether it's the relationship between growth and inequality, whether it's the enforceability of human rights or the possibilities of empire, we have found that things, what a surprise, are actually much more complicated than they seem. Now, we also need to be very careful about assuming we actually know what is going on partly because the data tends to be very bad and the models tend to be taken from inappropriate places and times what this means is to paraphrase both will rogers and our current uh, secretary of defense the problem is not what we know the problem is not what we don't know the problem is not even what we don't know about what we don't know the problem is it's what we know but just ain't so Pointing out the complexity of relationships or the need for better data may be the oldest academic trick in the book. I've tried it with the NSF many times. But it is a very important point to just once in a while say it may be more complicated and we could use a little bit more information. Now, what does that mean for the four issues that we've dealt with? The first panel addressed the fate of the state in an increasingly globalized world. We talked about, on the one hand, that the levels of authority were not necessarily oppositional, but actually local, global, and national authority could reinforce and resemble each other quite a bit. On the other hand, the state may actually represent the preferred mode of resistance to a perceived imperial globalization, as Gill pointed out in the case of Asia. Moreover, we should not assume that the state actually delivers anything, and we should certainly not assume that it looks anything like the liberal state of Western yore. The most important finding I think we can take from the first panel is that we can no longer assume the homogeneity of political orders that we had in the 20th century. Instead of the last 200 years dominated by states, we are entering a world where a multitude of political forms may actually exist. Each will have different relations with units above and beneath it. Now, this is going to be make it much, much harder for us to come up with a model of cooperative behavior because the relevant units will be different across time and place. It's going to be much harder to formulate policies as we will be dealing with very different enforcement mechanisms. Now, the unresolved question from the first panel, and the one which we really did not address, is where will the force of violence reside? I believe that the means of coercion are actually much more critical than even the means of production. And what the unanswered question, I think, from the first panel, and one that we'll be dealing with with years to come, is who gets to hold the guns? For the last 200 years, that answer has been fairly straightforward. I, know, I think it's no longer true. And that is at the, at the heart of, of many of the dilemmas that are facing us. The second panel was on the relationship between wealth and inequality. Perhaps, again, the biggest lesson here was precisely that the co- against the kind of hubris that the title of this conference exemplified. The data we are dealing with is of such questionable quality, and the causal links between policies and institutions are so complex and ambiguous that we have to tread very carefully when we make our policies. We also learned, again, that we have to introduce agency into the discussion of inequality. That the last 10 years or the last 15 years have led us to deal with it as simply a some byproduct of a natural mechanism. But that inequality is actually very much the product of institutions and of interested parties. We also found out, thanks to Jeremy Edelman's allusion to to the Hirschman tunnel effect, that inequality is a relational and a perceptual phenomenon. You may not care if your traffic lane is not moving, but if the one next to you is, then you get very upset. Perhaps the most important aspect of globalization in terms of growth and inequality is here's a key contradiction. We have integrated the vast majority of the globe into a consumption culture while marginalizing significant numbers from the availability of attaining that consumption culture. And that contradiction may come to haunt us. One word that did not enter the discussion yesterday was class. And again, excuse my anachronistic dinosaur. How do we make sense of class in a globalized world? Is class local, national, or global? I suspect that once we get the answer to this and we can reformulate class in a globalized world, we'll have a much better take on the policies that are used to balance equality and growth. A third contradiction in the panels that we sought to analyze comes from the fact that we have simultaneously recognized the rights of groups defined by identity to establish their autonomy while at the same time declaring universal principles. But what happens when such identity policies lead to insidious comparisons? When identity becomes shorthand for apparent participation in a conspiracy against the majority, you belong to group X, you're the reason I am suffering. What happens when, for historical reasons, an economic minority and a political majority come into conflict? Now, as Chris Eisgruber pointed out, this is at the heart of the constitutional debate in the late 18th century in the United States and motivates most, most much of the Tocqueville. Given that, why are we so surprised that it, this issue raises its head over and over again in new nations? And we, why do we assume that we have a solution for it? when it took so much debate among so many brilliant minds and a practically genocidal war to resolve it in the United States. I heard a great deal of defense of the local this morning, one way or the other, but not much about how the global was integrated into this. Allow me the the worst affliction of all academics is to reduce the world to uh, two by two uh, charts, but allow me to do one with one part would be intervention versus non-intervention, and the other one might be pluralist and non-pluralist. The cell that seems to be very critical is that which says intervention and pluralism. That is, we will allow for many varieties of approaching life. We will allow for the non-homogeneity of values, but at the same time we reserve the right to intervene when at some ambiguous line has been crossed. That is the area that, that 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 we have to we have to think about and we have to formulate. How will we allow global intrusion into the local? What forms of mechanisms will we create to deal with this? I suggest that judiciary mechanisms may be much better than legislative or executive ones, but the fate of world courts uh, and their enforceability is is obviously up, uh, in, in question. Which brings us to the last topic, the one we've just dealt with, the one closest to home. I think one consistent message from both papers is that the U.S. does not really have the choice of being an empire. Despite its historically unique power and influence, it does not have the resources to impose its order on an entire globe. More impo- most importantly, and I say this as a teacher in a place like Princeton, we do not have an imperial mission. I do not see my students motivated as they might have been in Oxbridge of 1880 to go run off and run the districts. I do not see that dedication in them. I do not see that passion in them. And if we do not have that passion to be an empire, it's going to be very difficult to manage it. But how to construct order in a system where authority is going to be fragmented, where inequalities are rising, and where nationalist hatred is rampant. I think this is where you get the temptation of empire, and I'm sorry for the sort of family metaphor, but it's very similar to the temptation of all parents after a certain point to just start screaming. Uh, you say, well, I've tried reason, I've tried everything else, damn it, out of the pool. Uh, I think it will, uh, an imperial temptation has about as much chance of success. Uh, so where are we? The state of the world is not just a reality that can be measured. I would argue that it's also a set of perceptions, a form, if you will, of Verstehen, a postmodern sensitivity without all the silliness to how things look. How does inequality look? How does local look? How does empire look? And an awareness that these perceptions feed on each other and help create that reality that we are trying to work with. An appreciation, for example, that Seattle is not just a response to globalization, but is in itself a part of globalization and a shaper of how globalization is perceived. Finally, where are we going? It seems that there are three large possibilities, either as empirical results or as normative goals. We have the the individualized globalization of a universal order of markets. This is sort of the IBM or Coca-Cola ad of globalization. Everyone can be on their computer sipping a Coke and just enjoying the fruits of it all. Uh, this is sort of where, where we thought we were going with 1989. That everyone would be wedded in the colors of Benetton, in a sense. A second possibility is a state-centered globalization. That is that we, this will include imperial strategies and regional strategies of resistance. In a sense, just the maintenance of a state system. But, with some slight changes, but that the same logic of state power will remain. I think this is probably the most likely. But the most worrisome is a third possibility, and that is the one suggested by Martin von Kreveld, in what he called a neo-medievalism, a return to a truly Hobbesian world where no center holds, and who knows what beasts slouch towards Bethlehem. Now, someone in the audience mentioned earlier that physics is no longer a linear discipline and that social science and social analysis should also avoid that temptation. Similarly, I'd like to suggest that the state of the world is not linear or predictable. We have to be careful about unintended consequences, about Heisenbergian principles of observer, observa- of, of observer intervention. The state of the world is complicated and we just need to study it a lot more. Here, let me make a very parochial claim for the importance of interdisciplinarity, of problem-driven approaches. In the academy, the disciplines have become so fascinated with the shapes and the colors of their own lenses that they don't seem any longer focused on anything at hand, on any real problems, such as the state of the world. Parochially, this is what I claim the Princeton Institute for International Regional Studies is, is trying to do to move us away from assassination on lenses and actually get back to the thing itself. I hope that the last 36 hours have contributed to that, and thank you very much for your patience. Thank you.